This is the last day of this November 2020 five-day online session. And we'll finish up uh, the stretch of selections um, from the book called Zen Essence, translated and edited by Thomas Cleary. It's a, a collection of teachings, very short teachings by a variety of different Chan masters, Chinese Zen masters. Uh, we uh, didn't finish yesterday with a master, Ying An, but now we will. He says, Zen cannot be attained by lectures, discussions, and debates. Only those of great perceptive capacity can clearly understand it. Can't be attained, can't grasp Zen. You can't really get it um, through lectures, discussions, and debates because it can't be encompassed in words. Now I go back to uh, the words of Walt Whitman yesterday. There is something that comes to one now and perpetually. It is not what is printed, preached, discussed. It eludes discussing in print. It is not to be put in a book. It is not in this book. This is from his Leaves of Grass. I've always um, been inspired by uh, sources of Zen wisdom uh, that originate from Western people like Whitman, uh, like uh, Rainer Maria Rilke. It uh, just is a reminder, I think, that uh, Zen, the, the real spirit of Zen, is not Asian or Western. It's beyond any particular geography. It's the, the mind of the human being. He continues, this that is Ying An, for this reason the ancients, the ancient adepts did not waste a moment. Adepts meaning practitioners, serious practitioners. They didn't waste a moment even when they weren't calling on teachers to ascertain specific truths, they were involved in real Zen practice, so they eventually attained mature serenity in a natural way. They were not wrapped up in the illusions of the world. They didn't waste a moment. They were involved in real Zen practice. This is surely the most difficult part of Zen practice is keeping it in activity, keeping this mind of awareness in activity and not getting lost in thoughts. It's very difficult. For most of us, it takes years and years and years and years 
to keep it um, vital uh, as we're going about all of our daily activities, it's a lot easier to have that kind of awareness or attention while sitting than uh, when engaged in the wider world. But it's really um, essential that we not limit Zen practice, Zen meditation, to the mat, the mat or the chair, that we be able to apply it all the time or much of the time. I think the, the, for those who feel discouraged at how little, how seldom during the day you may uh, have this kind of awareness of the practice you're working on or just awareness, being present, if you're discouraged at how seldom you can get free of your thoughts, um, just just know that it's it is it is so for everyone, and that it does take time and persistence. We're really trying to reclaim uh, the the natural awareness that we had as children. Children, up, up until a certain age, children, children are not bogged down by thoughts of the future or the past. They're fully alive. We can, we can get back to that little by little. And the more sitting, of course, the more sitting we do, in a day or a week or all, uh, the more we can uh, experience what that is to expand our practice into activity. He continues, if you can do this, at some point you will suddenly turn the light of your mind around and see through illusions to the real self. Then you will understand where everything comes from mundane passions and and illusions, the material world, form and emptiness, light and darkness, principle and essence, mystery and marvel. Once you understand this clearly, then you will not be caged or trapped by anything at all, mundane, or transmundane, that is, in the world of spiritual practice or um, beyond that, in the, the worldly things. That phrase, where everything comes from, then you will understand where everything comes from. I jotted down a very short passage here from the Lankavatara Sutra, one of the great uh, Mahayana sutras so very much um, esteemed in Zen uh, and most notably by our founder Bodhidharma. This was sort of his sutra, the Lankavatara Sutra. And there is this passage there where the Buddha says, every world arises from the conditions of ignorance 
desire, karma, and projection. Ignorance, meaning not knowing how, how, how things really are, not knowing the nature of things. Desire, that's what sort of the, the engine of this world of suffering, world of samsara, craving. Karma, well, yes, uh, we keep uh, sowing um, obstructive karma in small ways or larger ways by through our, our actions, our behavior, above all our reactions, that's the real problem, but also our words and both of those, the words and actions, reactions come from thoughts. That's, that's why meditation, that's why Zen uh, makes so much sense because it goes to the, the origin of our obstructive karma, our, 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 our um, obstructive unwholesome words and actions it's 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 thoughts or a, a more more to the point our attachment to our thoughts are getting caught in our opinions and our our, our views and uh and then being ensnared in them then we feel we have to defend them that leads to conflict and to violence and all of the tribalism that is getting so wildly out of control today. He goes on. Just let go of the burden of others and self. Those are both of those words are in quotation marks. Just let go of the burden of others and self, of ideas of gain and loss, right and wrong, Buddha and Buddhism, mystery and marvel. Those last that last pair, mystery and marvel. I can't quite relate to. I guess it's, he's warning about people who um, uh, get sidetracked into, I don't know, the paranormal or psychic phenomena, um, superstition. But the others are quite clear. Gain and loss. Just consider how, how many people in this world are are bound to this the seesaw of gain and loss the stock market how much how much anxiety fear there is that just issues from uh, involvement in the stock market As a as a very much a non <laughs> non economist, 
from everything I've been able to tell uh, about the stock market, it, it's really all about fear and greed. The interplay of fear and greed. I had a, a friend in college um, whose father was a executive for John Deere. I think he was the vice president of John Deere. And uh, Tom uh, came came uh, out of his e e economics class one day. Uh, this is in college, in University of Michigan, and uh, he was his mind had been blown by the lecture he had just gotten out of. And uh, what he said was, the stock market is all about what everyone thinks everyone else is thinking. Well, I, I can't con confirm or deny that. I never looked into it enough, but it's, I think he was onto something. He continues, uh, Ying on, as soon as you let go this way, again, let go of the burden of others and self and, and so forth. As soon as you let go this way, you feel body and mind light and easy, thoroughly pure inside and out. Then your heart is clear all the time. In a cool flash of insight, you go free. Now you're ready for refinement. I think he's talking here about post-Kensho. If you just keep to the insight you've attained and consider it ultimate, you are still clinging to something. Zen people free from convention are very different than this. It's a... Uh, it seems to be the way of things with practice that each time we reach a different level of insight, whatever that may mean, doesn't, doesn't mean just awakening as we understand it in Zen, but some kind of insight, our tendency is to think, ah, that's it. Now, now I get it. No, I, I thought I had it before, but now, now I know. Then if we continue, then the now that we thought we knew becomes, oh, that's, that was so limited. That was, that was just then. After a while, we can come to appreciate that there is no end. That how, however extensive, however deep, our insight may be now, if we keep practicing, we're going to see it as less than complete. I think uh, those who do this for life 
they they must understand that at some level they must intuit that there there's there are further dharma gates ahead and that they can't get too full of themselves for whatever insights they've had it's a part of the the wisdom of the koan system um, is that we keep repeatedly repeatedly running into these these formal dharma gates that have been handed down to us from 10th century china and uh, being reminded over and over of how uh, fuzzy our insight has is and how limited and how much further we have to go Here's another one from Yingan. If people want to learn Zen, learn is, I think, not the best word. Want to realize Zen or truly understand Zen, let them learn the Zen of a lone lamp shining in a death ward. That's pretty powerful image. The Zen of a lone lamp shining in a death ward. The word vigil comes to mind. Keeping a vigil, a death vigil. When my mother was dying, uh, we were caught in that difficult situation so many of you know where uh, you have work if not if not your own family uh, you've got work in another city maybe the other side of the country and you want to be there for her or him father sibling um, but you have to try to assess where you're needed more with the dying person or or well in this case with your sangha and um, I remember raising that in, in I think a kind of indirect delicate way with my mother and uh, he said oh you don't need to stay here I don't want people uh, what was it I don't want people holding a death vigil over me. But the real vigil is on a, a daily, a daily exercise is to be vigilant. One of our, one of the founders of our republic, I think, Thomas Jefferson, I think, said uh, the price of liberty 
is eternal vigilance. There's a real uh, Zen way of understanding that to, to be free, to not be slaves to our thoughts, requires real vigilance. Mindfulness, another word for mindfulness, is to notice when we're slipping away into our thoughts. That slipping into thoughts is a kind of avoidance of just the bare reality of this moment. And letting go of thoughts is a kind of dying, a very real kind of dying. I mean, dying, what does it come down to? Dying, what is dying? It's letting go. That's what is the challenge? What is the work of dying in the best way? It's letting go. And what is the work of living? Letting go. It's all about letting go. He just finishes this by saying, do not set up any limit with the idea that you want to come to awakening for sure by such and such a time. Yeah, there there are these uh, great masters who um, I've read about, read from in Taisho, who did that when they were new to their practice, um, full of piss and vinegar, where they would say, all right, and if I, if I, don't have it in 90 days, I'm quitting. I'm going to find something else. And they practice furiously for those 90 days. And, and uh, then, if they don't have it, they've been purified. That kind of setting a, a time limit, uh, they've been kind of liberated from that kind of contrived artificial thing and then they go on uh, as their practice matures to advise others not to do that and yet there's something impressive about that I, it's not something that I would recommend I never did it myself but um, to have to be that committed that dedicated to coming to awakening and recognizing that we may not have much more time at all in which to do that. This morning I came across a passage by good old Dogen. Time flies faster than an arrow. Life is more transient than the dew. No matter how skillful you may be, it is impossible to bring back even a single day of the past. 
to have lived to be a hundred years old to no purpose, is to eat of the bitter fruit of time, to become a pitiable bag of bones. Even though you have allowed yourself to be a slave to your senses for a hundred years, if you give yourself over to the Dharma for even one day, you will gain a hundred years of life in this world as well as in the next. Each day's life should be esteemed. The body should be respected. It is through our body and mind that we are able to practice the way. This is why they should be loved and respected. It is through our own practice that the practice of the various Buddhas appears and their great way reaches us. Therefore, each day of our practice is the same as theirs, the seed of realizing enlightenment. Time flies faster than an arrow. It's so hard for young people to really get that. So hard. Oh yeah, they get it in their heads. Yeah, all right, yeah, sure, we're all going to die someday. Now uh, pass the bread. Time waits for no one. Here's another one by the same master. The ancient Zen masters did not have a single thought of trying to become great people. Only thus did they attain mastery of life and death, and after that, greatness came of itself. If you have a single thought of eagerness to attain Zen mastery, this burns out your potential so you cannot grow anymore. Well, this is probably obvious to everyone that if we're thinking about the future and some special person we're going to be in the future, then what is that? Where is that getting us? The classical masters of Zen were people who had, above all, let go. That's our Ying An who said that. People who had, above all, let go. But here's the marvelous thing about Zen practice. You don't have to make a project out of letting go if you just can have enough faith in the practice you're working on. If you have enough faith in the breath practice, then in your absorption in the breath, the letting go happens. Forget about letting go. It's just one thing to focus on is 
the practice you're working on. Same with a koan. Letting go is some abstract thing that it's difficult to approach or understand. We don't need to. Forget letting go. But don't forget the practice you're working on. That's where it happens. He goes on, generally speaking, Zen requires a decisive, powerful will because you're going to be cleaning your six senses all the time so that even if you are in the midst of all the stresses and pleasures of the world, it is like being in a pure, uncontrived realm of great liberation. This matter of will, I thought I, when I was... Um, newer to Zen practice, I thought I understood it. Now I'm not so sure. It's a, it's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? You you need to have the will to pull away from thoughts to get back to your practice. That requires will, but. The other feature of will is strong self, strong huh. strong drive, a strong um, will there, will. There are people who come to awakening who don't have, as far as I could tell, don't have a strong will. But because they don't have a strong will, strong sense of agency, of I, they can somehow melt into awakening. Whereas people with very strong wills can spend years and years and years before awakening. There's often a stubbornness, a, um, <laughs> I keep going back to will, there's a willfulness uh, that uh, reflects this strong I. I will. Yeah, where's, the, where's the emphasis there? Is it on the will or is it on the I? But we do need to forge a strong will in the way that I just said, uh, to be clear about uh, our intention, our, the direction of our attention. Or what it is we really want. What do we want from this practice? If we're clear about that, then we will be able to marshal the will to go beyond, as he suggests here, 
go beyond all of these uh, obstacles, these sense pleasures and other obstacles that will uh, hold us back, impediments. In German, the word will, will, means want. But in any case, it can our will, our drive, our wanting can take us a long way, but we have to get beyond it if we're going to come to awakening. We have to f- discover what is supreme, what is beyond will, and that is relinquishment, surrender. But for many of us, we have to spend years um, harnessing that will in order to get beyond it. And we can't go around it. We can't just think this through. All right, good. So let's see. So I guess I'll just skip over the will part and go straight to the surrender, the merging part. Well, if you can, go ahead. He continues profoundly stable and calm like a gigantic mountain. You cannot be disturbed by cravings or external conditions. This is someone with strong will uh, to be one with the practice. You cannot be disturbed by cravings or external conditions. You cannot be held back by interference and difficulty. Sometimes uh, nautical analogies uh, can be pretty good. Um, you set your sight on a on the distant shore and uh, you may, your, your little boat may be um, beset by all kinds of cross currents and winds and maybe maybe sirens but you, your, your, your aim is clear to get to the other shore. And, and if that's clear, if you keep your eye on the ball, then you find a way to work through all those cross currents. But so much of this is, is a matter of just one's karma. You can't just... Um, decide that maybe you can but I think realistically um, it comes down to how strong an affinity we have with this practice and then it's sort of it's beyond our will because we're we've harnessed something way bigger than our individual will Uh, this uh, reminds me of this tapping into something bigger than ourself and our our will. Um, 
maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but I, uh, a passage by attributed to Einstein. So here, Einstein may get credit for uh, profound things that he never said. It's like Einstein, the Dalai Lama, and Thich Nhat Hanh. They they have written half of the world's wisdom. If you would if you'd believe that. Anyway, whoever wrote this doesn't matter. This is what she or he said. The religion of the future will be a cosmic religion. It should transcend a personal God and avoid dogmas and theology. Covering both the natural and the spiritual, it should be based on a religious sense arising from the experience of all things, natural and spiritual, as a meaningful unity. Buddhism, he said, Buddhism answers this description. Transcending a personal God. And again, Ying An, if you want to see the subtle mind of Zen, that is very easy. Just step back and pick it up with intense strength during all of your activities. Whatever you are doing, even as you eat, drink, and talk, even as you experience the stress of attending to the world. That first phrase, just step back and pick it up. Return to your awareness, return to attention. Be present, be alert. Don't be lost in your thoughts. Hardest thing in the world. Skipping through some pages here. Here's a master, Yuan Su, who I haven't heard of, but uh, he says. This inconceivable door of great liberation is in everyone. It has never been blocked. It has never been defective. Buddhas and Zen masters have appeared in the world and provided expedient methods with many different devices, using illusory medicines to cure illusory illnesses. This is because your faculties are unequal your knowledge is unclear. You do not transcend what you see and hear as you see and hear it. And you are tumbled about endlessly in an ocean of misery by afflictions due to ignorance, by emotional views and habitual conceptions of others and self, right and wrong. Boy, you just see how timeless this Dharma is. He just described what is playing out 
through great, great suffering and conflict, but it's playing out in our country and in other countries in an ocean of misery by afflictions due to ignorance, ignorance of the true nature of things, by emotional views, say by identifying with this political leader or identifying with this ideology or, or political party. When we identify with anything, then we are left uh, having to defend it, to react to other leaders or parties or ideologies or religions that we see as other. There's that other again. And habitual conceptions of others and self, right and wrong. The various teachings and techniques of Buddhas and Zen masters. Buddhas always remember, um, most of you probably know this, but Buddhas when it's plural, uh, Buddhas refers to enlightened people. The various teachings and techniques of Buddhas and Zen masters are only set forth so that you will individually step back into yourself, understand your own original mind, and see your own original nature so that you reach a state of great rest, peace, and happiness. It's all within us. It's all accessible to us. Happiness, peace, real peace, deep peace, rest. Let's stop now and recite the four vows.